W. Herbeck, named after my father. Um, Jordy is going to talk about an interesting topic called fiction based upon fantasy. The idea being that you create, envision new worlds that are not necessarily controlled by our physical laws. And it was, it was based upon a discussion he had with John about the relevance of having that kind of a genre. And so Jordy would like to talk to us about that today. Thank you very much for the introduction, Ned. Hi, Mom. <laughs> In defense of impossible fiction, a message for John McLeod. John McLeod, everybody. <laughs> it takes little imagination to picture a schizophrenic ranting about how all of modern physics is wrong. When will you sheeple understand? The Earth doesn't have seven continents. It has only one. A red, solid mass of mountain and dirt stretching 32,000 feet in the air around the prime meridian. The equator is surrounded on both sides by calm stretches of sea. So peaceful, they were immediately infested with monsters the size of aircraft carriers. This left only one route on each quarter of the Earth with the capability to reach the equator. The currents of each leading to the same point on the eastern side where a black-skinned sperm whale bashes his head against the slab of Earth which bisects the planet. Each island on the equator has its own unique magnetic field, rendering normal compasses worthless. Only by sailing across half the equator and navigating through an underground island inhabited by creatures half man and half fish could anyone hope to complete the second half of their voyage, circumnavigating the globe. And I'm telling you, I'm certain the government had something to do with the creation of this atrocity. They control the whole damn world. And that's why they're called the world government. Don't fall for their lies, sheeple. It takes a great deal more imagination to see how these delusions can be made coherent. And more still to picture other human beings voluntarily listening to this tripe, let alone compensating the maniac creating it in the process. But imagination isn't needed for any of this. The delusion I speak of is in fact a creation every bit as successful and influential in our own country as Charles Schultz's Peanuts comics are in our own. The delusion has sold over 400 million paperback volumes, inspired the creation of movies, TV shows, theme parks, restaurants, a musical, and video games. The delusion has been written and drawn by the same man for 20 years now, and still has a few years left to go before the story's finished. 
a delusion is Ichiro does One Piece, an epic black and white weekly comic about pirates with superpowers trying to sail around the world. When I told our own John McLeod about this comic, whilst transcribing notes for a historical fiction story of his about an ancestor from the Black Forest of Germany, he thought it was the dumbest idea he'd heard in his life. <laughs> Namely, John doesn't see the point in reading a work of fiction based on concepts we in modern times know to be impossible. Hearing this bothered me, not out of reverence for Mr. Oda, he has been richly rewarded for his efforts. Rather, I was bothered because I couldn't think of a good defense for why I'd read a work like this over, say, The Brothers Karamazov, an excellent work I just recently finished the first part of, and the contents of which violate no known or speculated laws of reality which could prevent its events from happening. The usual defense of fiction enthusiasts rang hollow to me. It's just escapism. It's just fun. Would millions of people spend money on it if the work had no value? All well and good and easily refuted. The first two points merely put fiction of the impossible on the same artistic level as pornography, if not slightly below. Pornographic actors are bound by the laws of reality every bit as much as professional wrestlers, no matter how little their behavior resembles how fighting and fornication occur in the wild. The third point holds even less value for the active thinker. Some of the greatest commercial successes in painting, such as Thomas Kincaid, comic books, such as Rob Liefeld, film, Roland Emmerich, and Brett Ratner. Music, Pat Boone and Lenny Kravitz. And literature, Dan Brown and Nicholas Sparks. Were amongst the most inept and artless of their fields. Sadly, fault for this does not lie solely with huckster executives. Modern writers of even lesser talent than the men I mentioned previously such as E.L. James and Reki Kawahara, attained wealth and fame with their respective Fifty Shades of Grey and Sword Art Online series, thanks to the distribution powers of the internet, entirely because their creations provide roughly the same narrative needs for their audience as pornography provides for the sexual needs of pornography's audience, only with far less thought put into the craft. Nor do defenses such as, but what about the Bible and the Mahabharata and other mythological works? Cut the mustard for me. Even if everyone in the world woke up tomorrow and ceased to believe in anything that cannot be falsified, the countless works through history, crafted during a time when everyone believed in myth and fable, would be impossible to understand properly without knowledge of the supernatural stories which influenced our forefathers any more than poetry can be understood without knowledge of the basics of language said poem was crafted in. This applies for translations, too. If you don't know how to write a good poem in English, you can't translate Dante at all, no matter how much you know about Italian.
But of these failed defenses, the comparison to mythology comes closest to satisfying my quest for an answer. If only because it at least starts pecking with something close to a right answer. Namely, by begging the question of why stories, deliberately or otherwise, contrary to the known rules of reality, ever existed at all. To dismiss them as mere superstition feels just as hollow as the thoughtless embrace, which, from its mere existence, allowed the creation of countless terrible spin-offs, sequels, reboots, remakes, reimaginings, rip-offs, and feature-length commercials for Japanese toy lines. An equally devastating fate awaits a world which merely flips these behaviors rather than figure out the reason for their existence. From this, I started on a better answer. Impossible fiction is a means for showing an audience lessons on the human condition beyond the power of historians. If only because honest historians are perpetually inconvenienced by revelations of substantial amounts of their work being nonsense and conjecture. Henry the Hotspur was in his late 30s when Prince Hal slew him at the Battle of Shrewsbury, and thus impossible to rob of his youth. This would have been known to Shakespeare himself just as much as it's known to modern man. None of that stops Henry IV from holding power vitality, and it never will. Still in incomplete defense. Whilst the events of Henry IV are incompatible with the known facts of the Anglo-Scottish Wars, nothing in the play violates the laws of nature. There is no continent the height of Mount Everest encircling the prime meridian, nor humans the size of elephants. There's no boy made of rubber, nor a man whom can turn into lava, nor is there a woman capable of birthing 89 children simultaneously capable of commandeering her own pirate army and crewed by anthropomorphized animals, inanimate objects, her vast spawn, an ocean of in-laws. Holding normal conversation in verse is merely improbable. The youth of Hotspur, merely untrue. But nothing straight-up impossible. Surely the same artist who puts effort towards something impossible could direct their same energy towards a work which could occur whilst obeying some basic framework of what we in modern times know can or cannot happen. But the passion and effort put into an, by an artist whom, be it through training or intuition, knows the rules of quality story construction well enough to know how to break them, is worth admiration and respect of anybody who knows how to identify such and puts the efforts towards actual analysis rather than coaxing on reputation for snobbery. Said artists can only create such a work when crafting on a subject interesting to them. A supplementary defense to the above is the degree to which a creator maintains internal consistency within their work while simultaneously keeping the work satisfying, whilst actually putting in enough effort for the follow-through to put the work out before they die, rather than sitting on their thumbs stuck in daydreamland. That internal consistency is valuable enough to make fall for a shortfall 
in correlation to consistency with the terraformer we call our own. Edgar Rice Burroughs' original idea for the Barsoom books lay in the telescopic analysis of Mars from a time decades before Sputnik. Would he have been better off waiting until we could send a camera to Mars and verify his concept was impossible? No human craft would reach Mars until 15 years after Mr. Burroughs' death. Must we discard his works now that we know them to be impossible? No less than Ray Bradbury himself described Burroughs as the most influential writer in the entire history of the world. Burroughs is needed to understand writing as it's been for the last 100 years at least. The same cultural context that requires understanding of the Bible to understand ourselves mandates a place for Burroughs, Tolkien, Dickens, Eguin, Shakespeare, Geoffrey of Monmouth, and others whose works describe things we in modern times have verified impossible. This actually supplements its own supplement. The writers of today, who know for certain these stories impossible, have a great admiration for impossible fiction of the past. But new works are needed to keep these past creations alive in the modern consciousness. Even words themselves, and language in general, are subject to this fact as this was the entire purpose behind Middle-earth's creation. I neither desire nor expect John McLeod to start reading a 1,000-chapter black-and-white comic series on my word alone. <laughs> it was already hard enough to convince my own parents to read a 12-chapter comic book series, which wasn't originally created in a language written in vertical lines from right to left. Nor does it matter to me if I've actually convinced John to invest himself in a work where the laws of Einstein, Newton, Darwin, Bohr, the Wrights, and Lavoisier are treated like suggestions. Nor do I put much stock in the hippy-dippy school of thought that all works of fiction are like real as you and me, man holds even stability required of a house of cards. The works of Amanda McKintrick Ross died before they were scratched, as did tens of millions of word types in fan fiction for the English language alone. I held this forum on this topic because I genuinely had to think about a defense for impossible fiction. Personally, I blame the modern entertainment industry whose first response to any attack on their jobs by the censorious is to immediately devalue the very nature of the creation of fiction, the it's-just-for-fun defense. No more reason need be given than to keep the ghouls off their backs. But that doesn't make such a reason true. Just because works such as these are routinely packaged alongside works created solely to reuse stock footage from Japanese television as a means of funneling cocaine and supermodels to a former bass player from Tel Aviv doesn't mean they're in the same category of product. Impossible works worthy of attention hold characters whom behave believably even as we live in times where such folk could no longer exist. They show us just enough of our future 
to inspire us earthlings to build their everyday for ourselves, even if we never match up exactly. They prepare us for what we've hoped never happened, but burdens us anyway. And their arguments bring fence-sitters into the field for the sake of something more than they could do as individuals. Questions which never receive answers through any other means and be accomplished via the power of impossible fiction. There is one hippie point I must concede affection towards. Carl Jung's theory of collective unconsciousness. In his own words, just as the human body shows a common anatomy over and above all racial differences, so too the psyche possesses a common substratum transcending all differences in culture and consciousness. I have called the substratum the collective unconscious. This unconscious psyche, common to all mankind, does not consist merely of contents capable of becoming conscious, but of latent dispositions towards certain identical reactions. Thus, the fact of the collective unconscious is simply the psychic expression of the identity of brain structure irrespective of all racial differences. This explains the analogy, sometimes even identity, between various myth motifs and symbols and the possibility of human beings making themselves mutually understood. The various lines of psychic development start from one common stock whose roots reach back into the strata of the past. This also explains the psychological parallelisms with animals. A more or less superficial layer of the unconscious is undoubtedly personal. I call it the personal unconscious. But this personal unconscious rests upon a deeper layer, which does not derive from personal experience and is not a personal acquisition, but is inborn. This deeper layer I call the collective unconscious. I have chosen the term collective because this part of the unconscious is not individual but universal, in contrast to the personal psyche. It has contents and modes of behavior that are more or less the same everywhere in all individuals. It is, in other words, identical in all men and thus constitutes a common psychic substrate of a suprapersonal nature which is present in every one of us. As for my own words, in many ways such a concept reminds me of the Holy Ghost, that which makes humans different than animals and machines, that which, if attained by machines, would no longer make them slaves, that which, if found in aliens, would no longer make us alone even if their own collective unconsciousness bears a great deal of difference to ours. It doesn't matter to me whether or not this talk convinces anybody to stop reading comics from their own country, let alone comics written from right to left about pirates with superpowers less scientifically plausible than those caused by bites from a radioactive spider. But the principles of this form hold true on far broader matters, 
and I've at least convinced myself that reading 884 chapters of Kumamoto Delusion was actually worth my time, even as I get to finish Cervantes. Thank you. We have uh, 20 minutes for questions, and then there needs to be some rehearsal. Anybody? Would anybody? Uh. I am of a different generation than the majority, and so I'd like to keep up with what's going on in this world, you know, as far as the youth. What is this series you're talking about? Oh. Uh, it, it, it's called One Piece. It is enormously popular. Uh, uh, to put it in Japan. in Japan, well, here's the thing, though. To put it in perspective, Spider-Man has been around for a lot longer. It's been around since the early 60s. Every issue of Spider-Man combined has still sold less than One Piece has in total. The problem is, in this country, it was repeatedly boulderized in the translations. Uh, it's, it's really weird because it's a kid's comic that can get pretty violent. A lot of the characters are casually smoking and everyone's totally fine with it. For one of them, it's even a superpower of his. He's named uh, Commodore Smoker. And he's able to turn his whole body into smoke, and he's always seen smoking two cigars. Except it's really cartoony, so it's hard to sell as uh, being for a broader audience. So that stuff got censored out repeatedly, and it made the people who get really hardcore into this stuff lose interest fast. So it really isn't all that popular in this country. But uh, think about that. 400 million volumes sold. And it's really not something we all even think about. I doubt anybody here has heard of it before I gave this talk. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> but, but on another line, I think there is a purpose for all of this fantasy and thinking out of the box. And if you go back to when I was a kid, kid we watched Flash Gordon. I yeah. don't know if you've ever heard of Flash Gordon. I actually have. Uh, we watched, uh, I think, the first set of serials together. Yeah. Me, my brother, and dad. Or, or, or Mighty Mouse. Or all these things that took you out of your today's reality into maybe a possibility for a future. And I was just thinking, or uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think a lot of that science fiction ended up not being such fiction. You know, as we learned more and did more. And uh, some of it more. certainly hasn't uh, been fiction at all. Uh, in terms of communications technology, we have actually exceeded most of what people thought was possible. Uh, we have communicators better than they have on Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have computers that can beat the greatest Go champions and chess champions alive. But if you also look at 19... 19- is it 64 or 84? 84, yes. 84. I mean, a lot of that's happening. <laughs> uh, well, if you look at the internet, they know more about me than I do. Uh, North Korea was the modern People's Repu- Democratic Republic of North Korea was created the same year as 1984 was published. And if you go over to the country 
and managed to live, uh, then you will have seen something that is pretty much exactly like what you have in 1984, if not slightly worse. So yes, even in terms of the bad stuff, uh, that actually has managed to happen. And this didn't directly happen in Orwell's lifetime because North Korea was actually richer than the South before the war. And uh, I think all the way up until the 70s, I don't know how long it lasted, but at some point, the social contract of we'll abuse you terribly, but you'll be wealthier than the bastards down south broke down, and now we'll abuse you terribly, and you'll have no escape at all. Uh, so yeah, it's, sometimes even the darker visions actually have come true. Now, fortunately, they haven't come true everywhere. There are a lot of places that have made significant progress against such a thing as 1984 being possible, uh, certainly not in the way we thought of it. So the problem is the people who wanted to make 1984 happen in every country on Earth haven't gone away, and they're not going to go away, and they're going to come up with new means of subterfuge, as we've seen from Vladimir Putin uh, and uh, from the treasonous... Trump campaign colluders uh, with the Putinists. As anybody who's aware of Engelbert Dolphus will understand, this is morally indefensible even for people who would want a Putinist United States of America because the Russians have absolutely no interest in the stability of the United States. But the importance of this impossible fiction is sometimes we come up against degrees of subterfuge and insanity that we really couldn't have imagined with previous technology. So we, you know, like you said, we do have to think about this stuff that we otherwise would never have imagined possible. It's a means of survival. Anything else? No, no, but I think that looking at unusual situations does help you problem solve in your today world as well. Well, certainly if they're well-crafted, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of stuff that is crafted now is just total garbage meant to sell toys and Happy Meals, but uh, what actually does have artistic merit put in, we'll show you a lesson. Yes. The uh, first uh, time I became aware that I was totally out of step uh, with uh, comics, uh, my first reaction was, why do we need the drawings? Because it was all literature. Yeah. What's, what's with that? I'm, I'm just curious as to, to well, why you couldn't just have a few pictures here and there. and, and uh, Part of the... Oh, why you couldn't just have a few pictures here and there and then just have... Tell you what the person, the character looks like because the ones I've seen are all literature and uh, the ones I've seen were out of Canada so I don't know if that makes a difference or not well, uh, Canada, I was just dumbfounded that it was all writing and no pictures uh, Canada does have a degree of tradition with that uh, the two uh, worst abusers of the wall of text that I've seen uh, which is what it's called when people in comics use this endless deluge of text uh, are both Canadian comic creators. Uh, Winston Roundtree and Dave Sim just 
brutally abusing this stuff. I, I'm just speaking above people who have any ability at all. I don't care about some nobody from Kansas living in their mother's basement making comics. Somebody who had any kind of success I do care about. But. So maybe that is a tradition with them. And, you know, I don't understand it either. I think it comes about because a lot of comics have a tendency to be written and drawn by different people. Uh, so, like, with Spider-Man, you had Stan Lee as the writer, and Steve Ditko was the original illustrator. Not like that anymore, but that's how it started. But then uh, Dave Sim and Winston Roundtree do all the illustrations for their comic, as well as the text. So, uh, really, I think it's just bad taste. I wish I had a better explanation, but I, I think it's just bad taste. Uh, John, do you have anything? Seeing as how you inspired this at all. Amazed to discover that our, our little discussion led to this avalanche of critical thinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do have an ancestor who um, might look superficially like a Superman, but uh, he, he tried to hide the his humble origins, and I'm having trouble understanding it, but he doesn't uh, fit in the category with any of the superheroes. Oh, no, he doesn't. But nonetheless... uh, Uh, Yeah, it's like Henry the Hotspur. A a rational approach to his uh, trying to understand his life led to to this avalanche of critical thinking, and I'm amazed. (laughs) Well, I I still would like to finish that story, uh, because... the story of John's ancestor from Black Forest is actually tremendously interesting. I took quite a bit of notes on it, and there's still a lot more to go, and I hope that I'd be able to write about it in greater detail someday and maybe even give a forum about it after I've finished that. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, uh, this is my defense for wasting time on this junk at all, and I really have to think about it, and I thank you very much, John, for helping to inspire this. Well, inspiring this, not even just helping. <laughs> Uh, anybody else? Uh, Carl? Some of your examples are rather dark visions of things. <laughs> what is your uh, view of what the world will turn out to be in your lifetime? <laughs> it's really hard for me to say because some of the stuff that I thought would happen that would be really terrible later on, uh, you know, like Let's say this was 2007. If I were to make a list of predictions of what would happen after 2007, a lot of the really terrible stuff that I would have predicted would have happened, uh, I don't know, maybe a war with India and Pakistan that turned nuclear, didn't happen. But some of the stuff that I didn't think could get nearly this bad ended up happening, like just how badly Russia has regressed Uh, Not that things are all that much better in 2007, but in terms of how much damage and uh, how offensive they are against our own country, I I thought that was behind us. I thought that was Cold War stuff, and I never could have imagined that it would not only swing up again, not only that it would get this blatant, but that they would win. And a lot of stuff, we can't just keep letting the Russians win in intelligence operations, and it, it gravely disappoints me that 
almost nobody actually cared about this stuff, aside from cynical political reasons. There are some people who cared about this Russia stuff before it got as bad as it's gotten uh, during the Trump era. But since there were these really terrible things that I thought would happen that didn't, and these terrible things I would have thought impossible, even the President Trump stuff, that was a joke from an episode of The Simpsons after The Simpsons wasn't even good anymore. Uh, and it happened. I, I never would have thought that if only because I would figure that uh, politicians in this country wouldn't want that and they would have been better at fighting against someone who is quite possibly uh, mentally retarded uh, to at least some degree uh, to become, uh, you know, to take over against both of them when they should have a whole bunch of really greedy and selfish people in them who want the power for themselves. Uh, I think the only way to handle it sanely is to just uh, learn to deal with a degree of ambiguity in your life. Because uh, it is really, really hard to get something dead on without later confirmation, even as you can spot some pretty clear patterns. Uh, just. Make yourself well-read on a couple of decent subjects. Uh, focus on them. Try to be a good person with them. Uh, try to fight for what's right, uh, even as it looks really, really hopeless. Uh, uh, don't worry about winning, either. Live with that degree of ambiguity, and don't worry about winning being the judge of whether you're right or wrong. Uh, and you'll be substantially happier, no matter how bad things get or how much you lose. <laughs> uh, as for the future, though, uh, I really can't say. Uh, okay, uh, Mrs. Gissler. Uh, oh. I'm just so impressed with you, Jordy. Let's give Jordy a hand. Uh, Joyce? Okay, well, I guess that's it. Mary? And Joyce? Anyway? Is okay, so everybody's good with that then. <laughs> Wonderful. Have you read the Black Swan? The Black Swan? Uh, no, I have not, but I know it's about events that people thought were like really, really unlikely that uh, just end up occurring. So I'd assume it'd be worth my time. I'll make it a priority. Okay. Uh, adios, amigos. <laughs>